You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll hear why the city attorney's office is suing the school district to force it to reopen faster. The case is certainly not over. And you're right that the board has resolved to open for all students in the fall, which is fantastic. But the board has resolved to open for all students in the past. And as we've seen, that has not happened. So I think simply having a a resolution to open is a necessary but not sufficient step to getting all kids back in the classroom. So we just keep moving forward with our lawsuit to try and make sure that all kids um, are back in school, all grades in the fall. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Before we get started, at the Public Press, which is Civic's parent organization, we've been working really hard during this pandemic to pursue angles we're not seeing much coverage of elsewhere, or to take a more systemic look at the issues that are surfacing in the headlines. The San Francisco Public Press is a nonprofit, and we're inspired by the public radio model. That's the idea that people who are able to support the work that we do so everyone can have access to it without paywalls or ads. If you think we're onto something, we'd very much appreciate if you could show your support. You can do that by going to sfpublicpress.org slash donate or by helping us get the word out about this show. Subscribe on whichever podcast platform you use or leave us a review. It really does help. So thanks. Students and classroom staff started seeing each other in person at some schools and in some select groups in mid-April. That was after more than a year of learning only through a screen. For tens of thousands of students, distance learning continues. The school board and district intend to give every student the option of coming back full-time in the fall. But the San Francisco City Attorney's Office doesn't sound fully convinced that that will actually happen. In February, City Attorney Dennis Herrera filed suit against the district and board in an effort to force them to reopen faster. We've been talking with students, parents, teachers, and we heard recently from the school district about the path toward reopening. You can find those conversations on our podcast feed or at sfpublicpress.org. As more and more students start to come back to campus, the city attorney's lawsuit is ongoing. And to close our series on schools reopening, I talked about why that is with someone representing the city in this case. My name is Sarah Eisenberg, and I'm a deputy city attorney and the chief of strategic advocacy in the San Francisco City Attorney's Office. If I could, I'd actually like to start very, very basic, just to give some context on who the parties are involved in this case. Generally, how would you describe the role of the city attorney's office? What is the city attorney's job? So the city attorney represents the city and county of San Francisco. Um, And an interesting wrinkle in this case is that the San Francisco Unified School District is a separate legal entity. They are not part of the city and county of San Francisco. So the city attorney's office does not represent them. So we've gotten a lot of questions about, hey, aren't you suing yourself here? Um, And in fact, we are not because they are a separate entity and we represent the city and the city is suing the school district. Yeah, I've certainly fallen into that trap of, you know, kind of flippantly describing this as the city suing itself. But but it is not that. Who is the is the school district accountable to in in this case? Would the court compel the school district to do something? Yes, that's what we're seeking. We're seeking the court to compel the school district um, to follow and comply with its legal obligation to open to the greatest extent possible and in compliance with the law. 
How would you describe this suit? If it's not, you know, the city suing itself, we've described that as wrong. How, how would you put it in layman's terms? It is the city suing the school district because the school district has failed to comply with its legal duty um, to offer classes to the greatest extent possible to San Francisco students. Mm-hmm. So it is the city against the school district. Mm-hmm. I guess this is going to come up a couple of different ways in this conversation, I suspect. But generally speaking, how would a court compel a school district that doesn't have a plan to reopen or doesn't have a plan to reopen immediately to do that and faster than it's already intending to do? Well, part of our suit was to say that they have to come up with a plan. Mm. (laughs) Um, And then their response was, we have a plan. And so we said, great, if you have a plan, then let's get to it. Get, you know, get open. Um, and we're not expecting that the school district could be ordered to open for everybody you know, the next day, but to be moving forward with a plan that gets students back in class as quickly as possible um, is both reasonable and legally obligated, we believe, under existing law. Well, let's say that a court order were issued compelling the district to reopen all schools full time, you know, as soon as practicable, which is faster than what they're doing now, according to this, you know, hypothetical court order. What are the consequences if the district then can't actually pull that off? Um, I mean, just as with any court order, um, if a party doesn't comply with it, they could be brought back before the court on a contempt motion. To, to say that they're not doing what they are obligated to do under the court order and potentially face consequences for contempt or some sort of receiver or overseer to make sure that they are meeting their legal obligations. Mm-hmm. Would that cost the school district money? I don't think any of this would cost the school district extra money. All we're asking them to do is what they are already supposed to be and legally required to be doing, which is to open to provide school to kids. So the Superior Court judge, Ethan Schulman, denied the city attorney's request for an emergency court order requiring the district to bring all students back to classrooms by the end of April. We're now in May, of course. And he said basically that the request didn't make sense because the district was already bringing back young students and some vulnerable older students at the time. I think now we're at over 19,000 students back in school. And the school board has resolved to offer all students in-person education in fall. So the the city attorney at that point issued a statement on this saying that the suit is going to continue. What did the judge's decision mean for you as the attorney who's actually, you know, representing this case? So the judge's decision means that we're not getting immediate fast-tracked relief. Um, But the case is certainly not over. And you're right that the board has resolved to open for all students in the fall, which is fantastic. But the board has resolved to open for all students in the past. And as we've seen, that has not happened. So I think simply having a, a resolution to open is a necessary but not sufficient step to getting all kids back in the classroom. So the denial of the motion means that we're on a slower track. Um, And we just keep moving forward with our lawsuit to try and make sure that all kids um, are back in school, all grades in the fall. How would this continue? I mean, what what happens next after this, you know, indication that the judge isn't inclined to say, yeah, the district needs to move much faster? 
So we only moved on some of our claims, and the judge held that we were unlikely to prevail on those claims. Mm -hmm. um, we have additional claims in the lawsuit, and so just as any lawsuit does, we can now move into discovery and get more information about what the school is, the school district is and is not um, planning and how far along they are in those plans and then bring you know, further motions or if necessary trials to try and keep the case moving forward and get the relief that we're seeking, which is again, you know, all students, all grades back in school as soon as possible. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, when you say as soon as possible, you also flagged that what the school district or sorry, what the school board um, resolved to do, it was just a resolution, but maybe put that into clear, starker terms. Where does the school board's pledge fall short for you? I think it falls short in that it's just words, and we've heard words from the school district before and not seen the action to follow up on that to actually get all of these children back in school. And it's not a plan, right? It's an aspiration, and it's a great aspiration, and it's a great goal, and we fully support that the school district and the school board um, are, are trying to move in that direction. But just saying you're going to do it is not enough. Um, there needs to be a concrete plan, and then there needs to be actual children in actual classrooms. I mean, to be fair, there are actual children in actual classrooms. It's just that it's a minority of, of the children who are in the district. And it does seem like the the schools, you know, I, like Mission High School, I walked by there yesterday. There were students. There were, you know, the doors were open. There were signs saying this is how we're going to do what what the safety protocols are. That's not a That's not a plan? You're, you're absolutely right. There are now some children that are back in school, which also is fantastic. Um, and But I, I think it says something that it took a really long time for even that to happen. And we didn't get kids back in school until, you know, civic leaders were speaking out. This lawsuit was filed by the city attorney. Parents were, you know, taking to the streets. And it took an enormous amount of combined pressure to get us as far as we've gotten. And we are thrilled that we are as far as we are at this point. Um, but that doesn't mean that it's time to to sit back and say, great, you know, we've got some kids back in classrooms. We <laughs> think we need to keep that, you know, that pressure on and, and keep holding the district accountable for their legal obligations until all kids have the opportunity to be back in school. You know, some of the, the middle and high school students are suffering in some ways the most from this. And they've been, you know, isolated and out of their classrooms for over a year. And we've seen terrible um, mental and physical health impacts of that for these for these students. Um, and it's time to be really moving towards getting them back in class. Yeah, and I do want to talk about the mental health impacts a little bit later. Um, but just to talk about this judge's decision a little bit more, this seems to me to indicate that you know, if the judge didn't want an emergency order, didn't find it necessary because the school district was already working on it, I guess, is maybe the, the most casual way of putting it. Doesn't that indicate that he wouldn't be inclined toward future orders either? I mean, why, why carry on if with that indication? Well, you know, so this the school district's council said that, you know, just because there's no public plan doesn't mean there's no plan. Um, oh. And so we're now moving into a phase of the case where we can seek discovery and we can try to get more details and see whether there really is a plan that is really going to get kids back into school quickly. And if there's not, um, then we can take that back to the court um, and move forward. So I think, again, you know, we're, we're not about taking the school district's word 
uh, for things at this point. We want to see concrete plans. We want to see concrete action. And if that doesn't materialize, we have the lawsuit to help us move that forward and, and require it. Mm. I mean, I don't know how much of this you can talk about, but can you can you say anything more about what else you're hoping to find in discovery? Because that's an interesting tidbit that there there's a supposed plan, but you haven't been able to see it. So what else might you find? Uh, well, we don't know. That's um, that's the beauty of discovery. We don't know <laughs> what we'll find when we get in there and, and see you know, what's happening, but we're, you know, we're curious to see and then to see how we can use that to move the case forward. Mm -hmm. This judge has also said that school districts around the state have struggled to reopen and has suggested that the case might be more appropriate for a federal judge. What would a federal judge do differently? How would this case change if it were a federal case? I don't know. That's a good question. And I disagree that a state court judge doesn't have the legal authority or the ability to give the same sort of relief that we are seeking in this case or that a federal judge could give. I think it's perhaps more common for federal judges to to give this kind of relief, but I certainly don't think it's beyond the ability or the authority of a state court judge. Um, can you explain that to a non-lawyer? <laughs> <laughs> Why would it be more common for a federal judge to give this kind of relief? And what is this kind of relief? So, uh, you know, I guess I would say it is perhaps more common for federal judges. And I'm not even sure this is true. I know that the Judge Shulman thought that this was true, that it is more typical for federal judges to be sort of, as he saw it, he would have had to be overseeing the reopening of the, the school district and getting more in the weeds of those decisions and that that type of continuing involvement was more typical for a federal court. Hmm. Um, but I don't think we believe that that type of continuing involvement is actually necessary here. We think that there could be just an order telling the school district that they have to comply with their legal obligations um, and open and then it would be up to the school district to do that and up to us to hold their feet to the fire and make sure that they were continuing to comply. And certainly that is something that state courts can and do do frequently. Just to expand this thought experiment a little bit more, how would this case end up before a federal judge if that were to happen? I mean, would this need to be escalated somehow? So I, I really haven't given that much thought, mm -hmm. um, honestly. I think it would be we are bringing state law claims. Um, and again, trying to explain that to, to a non-lawyer. I slip into my lawyer mindset sometimes. We are bringing claims that are based on alleged violations of state law um, and the state constitution. So if we were claiming that the school district had violated federal law or the federal constitution, it would be appropriate to bring the case in federal court. Mm -hmm. But since we're only alleging violations of state law and the state constitution, um, it doesn't really properly belong in federal court. So the, the case would have to really change and shift in order to properly be in a federal courtroom. This seems like a great time to dig into those allegations of California constitutional violations, because in February, actually, the city attorney's office expanded the lawsuit against the board and district to include those constitutional violations. And it alleged that by keeping schools closed, the district was violating students' rights under the California Constitution to attend public school and discriminating against students on the basis of wealth in violation of the California Constitution's Equal Protection Clause. Can we both go through those one by one? Um, how is the district violating, in, in your opinion, 
the Constitution's um, the the right that the Constitution gives students to attend public school. Yeah. So as you said, there's a, a a deeply enshrined fundamental right in the California Constitution, and this isn't in the federal Constitution. And so California really places um, a strong importance on the right to an education and the right to attend school. And if the right to attend school means anything, I think it is the right to go to a place with your peers and your teacher to learn. And keeping children behind a screen um, and out of school when is, is not satisfying that obligation. And just like any other right that you have under the Constitution, those rights can be infringed um, when there is a really good reason to do so. And there was, for a little while, a really good reason to be infringing on that right to be in school with your peers and with your teacher learning. When, when COVID first hit and our numbers were high and there was a lot of uncertainty and a tremendous amount of risk, and our public health officials were saying, this isn't safe. But now we're in a very different place. And the public health officials, local, federal, state, across you know, the country and across the spectrum are all saying that not only is it safe for children to be in school, but actively encouraging that it is best for children to be in school. So once there's no longer this compelling public health reason to infringe on that right to an education and the right to attend school, the, the school district has an obligation to do that and to to satisfy the, the rights of students to be in school with their teachers and their peers getting an education. So I understand that we're talking about your argument here, but um, just to be clear, does the state constitution actually lay out uh, any kind of detail about in what form students have a right to attend school? Like, the, does, Is there any language that makes it abundantly clear that being doing distance learning doesn't count as attending? Not in the Constitution. Um, the Constitution is, is sort of written at a higher level than that. Mm -hmm. There is some case law interpreting it um, that we think indicates that that is what the constitutional right means. And we think there's a common sense interpretation that, uh, you know, as I said, it, it, if it means anything, um, it really means that there's a need for the socialization and the interaction that are such a critical part of education. Education teaches us not just reading, writing, and arithmetic, um, but it teaches us how to work with others, how to collaborate, how to interact. It introduces us to people who are different than us and from different backgrounds. And all of that is a critical part of education. And the California cases recognize that. And none of that can you get in the same way from distance learning. Mm -hmm. Yeah, as, as students and parents and teachers have repeatedly emphasized. I do also want to ask about, you said that there was a compelling reason, you know, when cases were high. Um, this suit was filed in February 2021. When, at what point was the, was the reason for keeping students out of school no longer compelling? What metrics were you looking at that, where you said, okay, at this point, it doesn't make sense anymore? So we're looking at the at the experts, right? I'm a lawyer. Um, I don't know when public health is going to you know, require schools to be closed, but the public health experts do. That's their role. And at the time that we filed the case, local 
federal and state officials were all saying that it was safe for schools to be open. And so we think that deferring to the experts on this question of when there's a compelling reason to infringe on that right um, is the way to go and that it shouldn't be up to lawyers or teachers or principals or the school district, but it should be up to the public health officials to say when there is a adequate public health reason to be keeping kids home. Mm -hmm. I'm speaking with Sarah Eisenberg, Deputy City Attorney and Chief of Strategic Advocacy in the City Attorney's Office. So uh, we've talked in detail now about the first alleged constitutional violation. What about the second one of discriminating against students on the basis of wealth? Mm -hmm. So I think the school district's own data and studies have shown that distance learning has a, a different impact, a disparate impact in legalese, but it impacts families and children differently depending on their socioeconomic level. And that lower income students were struggling the most with distance learning and experiencing the most learning loss. And the school district was aware of that. Their own data was showing that. And, the, you know, we're not saying that this was done on purpose, mm -hmm. but the effect of this policy and this ongoing, you know, distance learning was having and continues to have a worse effect on lower income students. And that violates the Constitution. So it doesn't need to be intentional in order to still be discrimination. Right. Mm -hmm. So the recurring topic that we've already touched on that I want to get into more and, and this criticism um, that, that the city attorney has repeatedly directed at the district for remaining closed is the mental health toll that distance learning is taking on students, quite apart from the achievement gap or, or students' abilities to progress um, academically. It's, it's really hard for them. And I think parents have seen a lot of behavioral changes in their in their kids as they've been isolated. I, I think it's clear how that adds urgency to the situation. Certainly parents have been emphasizing that. But is there anything in the suit that would force the district to specifically take action on the mental health issue? Well, you know, we raised it in the context of our preliminary injunction motion because to get injunctive relief from a court, um, you need to show that sort of the equities require it, that failing to grant this relief uh, has a, a worse impact than granting it. And so the fact that, you know, these the struggles are so real, and we spoke to parents, and we spoke to doctors, and we spoke to psychologists and psychiatrists, and it was heartbreaking to hear how much this has been hurting our students. And so that is certainly a factor that was relevant to the, to the court and will continue to be relevant to the court in assessing the, the appropriateness of injunctive relief. Um, I think, I don't know that legally the school board has to take that into account, um, but I, I think that they should be, and I'm sure that they are. I mean, everybody is certainly aware of the terrible toll that this is taking on students and um, you know, we, we are teeing it up in the context of the appropriateness of relief in our case. Mm -hmm. And relief is getting kids back in school. That's right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, you just mentioned the school board and that the school board may or may not have to take certain things into account legally. One thing that I would like to clarify from, from before in terms of who the different parties involved are here, if if the judge were to issue a court order whom would it compel, the district or the board, or are they one and the same? So they're both named 
in the case. So it would be it would be both. At the same time, I mean, I guess like I'm asking who what's the who are the various responsible parties here? It seems like the district would set in motion decisions that the school board makes. Is that right? Mm-hmm. That's right. And the, the legal obligation would flow to both of them mm-hmm. to get the schools open and get children back in class. Mm-hmm. I don't want to necessarily talk about any of the controversies that have been, you know, floating around regarding the school board. Um, but I am curious if the sort of changes in leadership, both on the board and in the district, I mean, the the superintendent intended to leave and then agreed to stay for another year. Have those affected the school district and school board's abilities to respond to this case or to take action, in, in your opinion? I guess I can't say I don't know the inner workings of the school district and the school board. And I would hope that, you know, whoever is in charge is prioritizing getting kids back in class and the legal obligation applies regardless of who is in charge. Um, And as you said, you know, we haven't been getting involved in all the controversies. We are focused on our litigation and the importance of getting kids back in school, regardless of who is running the school board or running the school district. Mm Some teachers and some parents are actually still reluctant to return to classrooms because of concerns about coronavirus. I mean, enough teachers have received exemptions from returning to in-person teaching to create a challenge for the district and hiring enough substitutes. And parents that I've talked with have also said that there's, you know, still some fear about potentially being the family that brings the virus into a school or their child unwittingly bringing home the virus to vulnerable family members. So just to get clarity on what this suit is actually seeking to achieve, are you making a case that all teachers and students should be compelled to return to classrooms as soon as possible or just that they should have the option? We don't speak about teachers being compelled one way or the other. We say that all students should have the option, have to be offered the opportunity to be in class um, to the greatest extent possible. I know that our local health officer has been really out there a lot, exerting a lot of effort and resources, trying to reassure teachers and families that it is safe to be in school. Um, she recently did a town hall for parents and for the school district um, and has put out statements and put out guidance. That is a really important message that I would be remiss if I didn't drive home in response to that question, that everybody agrees that it is safe for children and teachers and staff to be back in school. And if people have concerns about that, they should talk to their doctors and they should read up on it. But there is a consensus and the San Francisco health officer has been very vocal about trying to allay those concerns. So I understand them and she understands them as well. But she believes and and I believe and the CDC believes that being in school is not a, a risk at this point. We have talked about how some students are back in school and and you've acknowledged, you know, this is better than where we were, but it's still not where we want to be. What kind of action from the board or district would convince you, say, that there is a plan and that they're implementing it and, and would make you say, OK, it looks like things are on track now? It's a good question. And, and I'm not sure that I have an answer to it. I think that might be, you know, it when you see it and we certainly <laughs> haven't seen it yet. Mm. Um, are there other districts in the Bay Area or in the nation that are facing or have faced lawsuits from their city attorneys or comparable offices to compel them to reopen? Like, is there some kind of precedent or a parallel case that you're observing? 
Not that I know of as of this point. I think we are we are writing this playbook as we go at this point. Do you have any speculation as to why San Francisco is unique in that case? I think that City Attorney Dennis Herrera um, feels very strongly about this issue, really felt like this was a problem and a legal problem that he had the ability um, to address and felt like he needed to be a leader on this and support parents and support children. So I think we are unique because Dennis Herrera decided that that this was a fight worth fighting. Mm -hmm. Well, is there anything else that you wanted to add about this case or about schools reopening in general? Oh, that's a big, broad question. It is. You can um, take a minute to think about it. <laughs> uh, I guess just that, you know, the city attorney's office is is not sitting down or giving up on this fight. You know, we, we faced a setback when we lost our preliminary injunction motion. But the city attorney himself and the whole team um, that's working on this continues to feel very strongly about it and that children have the right to be in school and need to be in school and we will keep fighting for that until we until we get there. I guess I'll just ask because I'm curious. Um, do you have kids in the district and are they back in school? I do have a child in the district who is back in school. She's in kindergarten. She's back in with, with limited hours, but she is back and it is great. <laughs> yeah. What's changed since she went back? I mean, she loves it. Uh, she is learning. She is happy. It is great for our family. Um, it is great for her. So I want everybody to have that same opportunity for their kids to be getting this socialization and education in school. Great. Well, Sarah, thanks so much for talking with me about this and explaining lawyer things in layman terms. <laughs> of course. Sorry if I, if I launched into legalese every once in a while. And thank <laughs> you for bringing me back. <laughs> That was Sarah Eisenberg, Deputy City Attorney and Chief of Strategic Advocacy for the San Francisco City Attorney's Office. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is produced at KSFPLP 102.5 FM in San Francisco. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Our team includes producer and contributor Mel Baker and assistant producer Liana Wilcox. KSFP is a project of the San Francisco Public Press, a nonprofit investigative newsroom. Find our reporting at sfpublicpress.org.